0: The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. All right. Good evening. Just a reminder: this uh, Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. It's a fun community. You'll get an early heads up on stuff that's happening, uh, going to come up on the weekend shows, and you can have your say about stuff. Ask Max Cryer a question. Do what you like. You know how Facebook works. You know, just give away all your information <laughs> to Cambridge, whatever they are. Okay. Uh, very shortly, the world of human statistics with Jonathan Dodd. What New Zealanders this week think about a whole lot of stuff as compared with other countries. you got to give it
1: up. You need to give
0: it up. On oh, just a heads up for tomorrow night, a fresh outsider tale with Gerard Hindmarsh, the amazing story of a cat by the name of Tupaya. He joined Captain Cook on the endeavour for that first visit to New Zealand. It's an amazing story. It's like a return someone coming from Hawaii uh, not so legendary Hawaii and making it to New Zealand. What a kind of an impact that had on the New Zealanders. Human Statistics up next, Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos. The weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details visit dockedge.nz. Time for an array of human statistics because they ask them. That's Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, Research Director. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, day, Graham. Okay, we're focusing a lot on New Zealand stuff here. It's part of this New Zealand Issues Monitor Survey. Um, what's the sampling size? Can you tell us?
2: Right, it's a bit over 600, and we make sure that it's all representative by you know, age and gender and all that kind of thing. So it's a pretty good um, snapshot of what New Zealanders are thinking at the moment. Uh-huh and we've been doing this quite a while in Australia, so it's quite nice to bring it out to New Zealand because, of course, the big thing's going to be seeing how it changes over the years to come. Mm-hmm. But for now, one of the key things is we give people a big list of uh, 20 issues and we say, well, what are the top three that are you know, really troubling you at the moment? What are, what are the big issues that, that are bothering you?
0: them mm-hmm. any ideas what number one might be? Uh, well, I, this, again, depends on who you are, where you are. Well, actually, that's one of the interesting things. The number one issue was basically the big issue for
2: almost everybody, and that's housing, mm-hmm. um, which is a bit of a no-brainer, I guess, in retrospect, housing accessibility, affordability, because you know that's a real big one. And 41% of people picked mm-hmm. that one. And that was followed by poverty and inequality in health care. But as you say, it really depends on who and where you are, and it's a really interesting example of, how what's right in front of us or what we see tends to dominate our minds. You know, we've we'll talked about this with our cognitive bias discussions in the past about how the more personally close something is and the more frequently you see it or the more authority that's given to it, the more likely we tend to to pay attention to these things. So it's quite interesting when you start looking at the differences and, and start thinking about why are people thinking it differently? Like for example, when you look looking at all these various issues, men were much more likely to be worried about drug and alcohol abuse than women. But women were more worried about inflation and the cost of living. And you can look at that and go, well, because men are more likely to have alcohol and drug problems and women are more likely to be trying to um, look after whole households and kids and more aware of income, and they also earn less on average. So while they're all worried about housing, for example, you start seeing other issues coming to the fore, and that's what I usually find most interesting because you you get an insight into – how different people are worried about different things.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. it's a big media thing at the moment and has been for a decade at least, and that's housing affordability. Will young people yeah. be able to buy their own home? It's something I don't see in uh, a lot of places overseas that are highly populous countries they don't even think of owning their own home. It's a cultural thing here um, that maybe we're just going through this stage of, you know, that you get a population of more than a million um, and it, it is harder to buy your own home and yet those expectations are still there. Fair enough, if you, want, if you have those expectations, you know, I hope people can be able to attain them. But ask somebody in New York um, who's born or raised there uh, do you expect to own your own home? And they'll just look at you and laugh.
2: Exactly. And I guess it's the flip side when we talk about being a more international a more modern economy, mm. um, working more globally, then we've got different prices and things that come along with it. You know, we see this even with things like dairy prices and stuff. You start playing global rates. So you're right. That's a good example where it's as much about your cultural background and what you think is sort of right in the Kiwi way. Yeah. And that concerns you because um, – yeah, you're absolutely right. we we like to think it, it's the right way to do it, but not necessarily. Huh. Um, what is actually really worrying how, um, younger people, interestingly though, is still, even if they're not looking at the housing costs, it's just still generally the cost of living. And that is quite interesting because obviously younger people have less less money. So for them, they're almost as worried about inflation and cost of living as they were worried about housing. Huh. Um and as you'd expect, older people, like in their 60s and 70s, for them it's about health care and hospitals. Oh. So it's pretty pretty natural when you start seeing these things and say, well, younger people are actually more concerned with this and older people with that. But what I thought was one interesting aspect was that it was those age 55 to 64 who were the most concerned about the environment. Yeah. Yeah, and we often see that. You know, you become a parent or you start... Getting on life and seeing how things used to be and being old enough to think, well, what's the it life going to be like for my my children and my grandchildren? And it becomes more an issue. Whereas young people, it's just like, well, <laughs> I'm just trying to get by and and afford what I need to afford in life without worrying about anything else. So you do certainly see some interesting stuff like that. And yeah, that probably it, explains when
0: yeah, it can be a little like uh, a, a luxury to have the time to be concerned about the uh, environment it's a very good thing to do that does have feedback on all sorts of things not only our GDP and you know least of all our GDP it's know. massive but um, it, it's it's kind of you need a little bit of time to appreciate it and people over 55 probably have a bit more time go to a forest and bird volunteer meeting and oh hello it's all the gray hairs oh, yeah. that can make exactly.
2: it exactly yep. Um, and that explains why you get the big issue when they're talking about global, you know, climate change and who deals with what. Is the difference difference between developing countries that are still just trying to handle a growing population and do things the best they can, yeah. and the wealthier population, they, they, you know, their biggest problem is whether they have a paper or a plastic bag at the supermarket. Yeah, you've got to... Yeah. Okay. So it explains things. When when people can have these big debates about what's important, they have to realise that and, and this is a thing that's always bigger than research that we do, you've got to look at people's own backgrounds and where they're coming from. And you've got to understand that once you do, then you understand a lot.
0: Okay. Let's go on to a cognitive bias this week. The reason respective tendency, what does this translate to in English?
2: Well I <laughs> You, you probably know how annoying it was. I don't know if you were as a kid sometimes, you know, when you want to do something and people would go, well, because I say so. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with the boss that just says, I don't have to explain, I'm the boss, do it that way. Yeah. You know, and, and we all hate that kind of a thing. And one of the key reasons we hate it is what's called this reason-respective tendency, which is that if you give them reasons why something is the way it is or why you should do something the way it is you're more likely to agree with it and to go along with it or do it and it's not actually about the quality of the reasons it's just their existence it's really interesting that people like to believe there's a reason for it they like to think that something has got logic it's a solution there's a sound reason for doing it but as we all know the quality of the reasoning can be really rubbish but a reason is better than no reason at all yeah and people just tend to go along with stuff and if they don't have the ability to really assess the quality of the reasoning the mere fact that exists is enough they just want to know okay well that person seems to know what they're doing and we've talked in the past about how we tend to believe people in authority positions more even if their authority isn't in the area yeah. that we're discussing um, but yeah, as soon as you get a forceful argument presented and, and reasons, just it's just about their existence.
3: There's you
0: know, one does one area of society that I still think is exactly the opposite and thrives on it? And I've got to say, the military. If you're a, a soldier or a sailor um, in in the military, you you, you're told to do something. You don't go why.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I'm, you've heard me over the weeks, I'm a big believer in evolutionary psychology and that everything pretty much goes back to surviving in the wild and how we've got to think quickly and make snap decisions and so forth. And a strong military doesn't have, you know, a thousand soldiers going, why? No. You know, and even if you've got to pick your gang of five thugs to stand behind you if you want to do something in the street, you want those thugs to do what you say and do it quickly. Yeah. And that still just comes down to survival instinct, about being able to do things quickly and efficiently.
0: Yeah, and they spend a lot of time and effort and expertise in making soldiers jump yeah. when <laughs> yeah. they say jump.
2: Yeah, I think what well, boot camps is trying to break people down, yeah. but gangs do this, you see gangs do that, with initi- and not, when I say gang, gangs, a gang can mean just the people that you happen to be, um, be living with in a dormitory or working with, and we call those initiation rites. Yeah. It's like you go through something that's embarrassing and give yourself a bit away, and you're less likely, as a result, to go along um, to question the herd.
0: Okay, this week in New Zealand, we've already had a little bit with that uh, other uh, survey, but, oh, yeah, the BP petrol price, people have really gotten on this and thought, not fair, not fair. It happens in other areas where people don't jump up and down and go, not fair, not fair. This is, I love this, and it's all about the
2: perceptions of categories and what we pay, you know, and because we don't expect salaries, we don't expect housing, we don't expect anything to be the same price right around the country. And if it was, we'd say, well, that's that's communism or something terrible, and it's price fixing. And then as soon as we find that petrol varies shock horror because petrol companies have to make money and they've got different markets, they get upset. And it really just reflects our perceptions of categories. Yeah. And it comes down when people say, well, well, petrol's a necessity, so therefore it should pay by different rules, but the point is it's a resented necessity. So people feel trapped and they question pricing practices. So when you find out that McDonald's prices vary from shop to shop and the prices of um, anything from clothing or whatever, they all vary from country to country and, and town to town. Um, they don't question it. But I think the key thing here is, is it's resented. And we talked before about dairy as well. You know how everybody got upset with dairy prices. Mm. And while dairy, dairy products aren't really a necessity, um, it's that whole national identity thing like buying a house you know, the people 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 bring a lot what I call a or rational arguments to some of these categories, without realising that at the end of the day, it's still just a um, a economic argument. It's just the capitalist society that we live in, and um, and I've known people that go, well, you should just fix the prices, or make sure that people can't earn more than us, or more, more earn more than that. And of course, you're straight down the you know the nanny state and ultra control that we don't want. Uh, yeah,
0: that, that's yeah. a bit more than nanny state. Actually, that's <laughs> exactly. that's an author- authoritarian, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. state. But,
2: but but it's not a any state if we agree with it, is it? And and yeah. that's that thing that people are more likely to believe or promote practices that come to the ends that they desire. Like, we want cheap practice for cheap petrol. So, therefore, the government should intervene. Well, what if they intervened in your own industry and said, oh, sorry, Graham, there's there's a cap on how much radio presenters can get. You're going to have a pay cut, but don't worry. It just means that all those other um, radio presenters get the same amount of income as you, regardless of how much you, you actually, how good a job you do.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, um, interesting this week, it was applauded uh, 100%. I think that the women's football team are going to get the same as the men's. I mean, on the face of it, it seems great, and it's uh, a a great victory for equality. But um, when you have a look at how many people are watching one compared to the other. I don't know, maybe the women's is more more popular. It's one area where our female football team does uh, better than uh, the all-whites. But <laughs> the thing is, you know, in uh, in general, football is just so massive in the male domain. Uh, and yeah. it earns so much money. But
2: I think that's where it gets cloudier. Um, be- while you can all sit here and say we're all for pay parity, Um, football and and sport, it's it's basically just professional entertainment. Yeah. And the Rolling Stones will get more than some indie band down the road because they attract more people. You sell more TV rights and stuff. It's entirely related to the fact that sports people who are getting paid are a professional entertainment product. Yeah. And if you want to get more money, you have to have a product that that attracts more people and sells greater TV rights and stuff. I think maybe if you're dealing with national teams that are mandated by... Um, a national body, which is there to promote um, elite performance. For New Zealand, it's a bit different.
0: Yeah, it it feels good, doesn't it? Um, And that's, therefore, the uh, either uh, um, Brodie Retellick's going to have to take a bloody hell of a pay cut or the Black Ferns are going to um, get one hell of a pay rise
2: yeah it little be the same but maybe they could tie it in with lights or something like that. Yeah. but again it's just like like we talk about the petrol and everything like that they just have to go what are you being paid for and, and, and what are you really? Yeah. yeah so and that's why a lot of um, a lot of professional um, sports people don't actually participate in things like the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games, yeah. because it's not actually financially worth a while. It's not a priority. Can't yeah. be they asked. Often, yeah. <laughs> well, they they would be asked to still competitive and like to perform, but they'll have a contract, and the contract is you're part of a team, and the team's purpose and the sponsors want to see bums on seats and viewing numbers and yeah. exposure. You're not going to get that if you disappear for three weeks to do an event that doesn't get the exposure, and secondly, because you can't wear commercial sponsorship on your um, on your Olympic kit. Yep, it's all, all right. muddy at the end of the day, but I guess when you're getting it, there's
0: no complaints. Oh, well, um, all strength to the women's football team, but here's a way to really fix it. Go get yourself by the T-shirt, watch the games, go to the club games, pack it out, show that you want it, and it will follow. Yep, yep, just look at beach volleyball. Yeah. Ha. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much, and we'll talk again Thanks, next Ray. week. Cheers. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival
2: Enter online for a VIP experience
0: Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live
3: Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy
0: A weird thing happened. I don't hear of this happening a lot. One farmer destroys nearly 30% of threatened plant habitat. Bloody hell. Break glass. Pull switch. What plant? How? Why is it rare? Forest and Bird has now applied for court enforcement orders. Uh, They wanted to do something about this. It was a farmer near Christchurch. I think it's Eldersmere. Basically raised about 30% of the national population of a little shrub, which is actually common around gardens, but in the wild, rare as hell. Joining us, Jen Miller, Regional Manager, Canterbury West Coast, Forest and Bird. This must be of some concern to you in order to take on court proceedings Jen?
1: Yeah obviously Graham this is really unusual for us to feel it requires an action such as an enforcement order seeking that the landowner doesn't do any further clearance and also we would like that he would restore what he's destroyed.
0: Okay tell us about this plant why is it so rare in the wild and how how could one person get rid of 30% of it?
1: <laughs> well the millenbeckia stonii is like many of our native species. They have become increasingly rare as a result, primarily um, in this instance of the modified habitat. It's found in coastal and lowland areas, and that's obviously where most of the development that's happened in throughout the country. Clearly not a plant that easily <laughs> replicates itself, so that they've actually been able to count them. They have an inventory of the plant. Um, and there's around about 3,600 left in the wild. We're not even entirely clear what is the best habitat for it now.
0: They're in almost every garden centre, though, aren't they? is, is that somehow assuage the pain of this?
1: No. It, it's a bit like kaka you know. It is uh, not found in the wild any longer as a result of what we talked about, that loss of habitat. So we certainly don't want to see our plant species just simply contained in nurseries and domestic gardens or botanical gardens anymore, than we only want to see our kiwi or our kākāpō just in zoos or offshore islands. We want them to be able to grow within their natural habitats as much as possible.
0: Did this farmer commit a crime, or is he perfectly within his rights on private land to do what he did?
1: No landowner has an absolute right to do what they like. That's why there are district plan rules which uh, limit to some extent work that can be carried out on areas that are special and on areas where you have these special plants, not just the merlin um out there. It's a sort of a, a, a modified grassland They are becoming increasingly rare ecosystems. They contain lizard species that are in serious trouble. They have endemic invertebrates that are not found anywhere else moths that have not found anywhere else so it's not just simply a matter of taking out the mulimbeki estonia it's it's the destruction of a whole rare or part of sorry a, a rare ecosystem
0: plants don't really get a lot of the protected status do they if this was private land and it was a rare bird let's say yellowhead or something th- there would be far more outrage wouldn't there
1: I think so. You know, <laughs> when you think about it, 30% of it gone, 30% of the moulin here in, it, in its um, natural habitat gone. Yeah, as you say, imagine if that was 30% of mm. black robin or whatever.
0: Do plants um, actually have that protected status?
1: Uh, yes, they do in some respects, but it's really difficult to protect endangered species on private land um, without... Uh, a lot of concern by the landowner that their rights to development is being fettered. Yeah. Ideally in a situation like this, we had such a rare ecosystem, just naturally rare anyway. It should have been a, a site that was purchased a long time ago. People have been aware of the specialness of this place for a long, long time. Um, in these instances, I think the only solution to guarantee protection Unless, say, for instance, the landowner treasures it and uh, wants to covenant it, for instance, the, the best solution is to purchase. I don't want to give landowners an excuse to cause such damage to this extent because there are rules that limit the amount of development that can occur. But when you have this large area of such precious uh, ecosystem, really it should be in the public ownership
0: public ownership of this land, making it public, uh, is that the only answer? Did he do something wrong?
1: Uh, In our view, he has. In our view, uh, he was not able to carry out the work he did as of right. Um, In our view, he would have required a resource consent to carry out the work, and there may have been through that consent it may not have prevented him entirely from doing the work but it may have limited or may have sought some avoidance or remedy or mitigation in our view he was not permitted to do it
0: did he do it on purpose did he know that this thing was rare?
1: Um, I
0: he, oh, okay no that's it's in the in front of the courts I understand yep. that might be a difficult yep. question
1: I, I, I kind of do want to say, that landowners do have responsibility to understand what the rules are in the plan or what the values are of the sites is that that they own and they work on. There is a requirement or a responsibility for a landowner to make themselves aware of provisions and plans before making assumptions about what can be done.
0: How much private land might be in a similar position where someone either out of ignorance or just simply wanting to develop their own land where rare species might be and danger of being diminished?
1: It's hard to estimate. I know sites where clearance has occurred that I would have considered to have significant values, and it's occurred often without a resource consent, but you can't monitor all those places, and you can't stop somebody from carrying out destruction if they're hell-bent on doing it. What is really annoying, from my point of view at least, is we negotiate plans and we have rules and then when rules are broken, the councils are often poorly resourced to monitor or enforce the rules. That is almost universal in rural New Zealand.
0: It's not an inconsiderable thing for Forest and Bird to do. You survive on donations and stuff like that. My God, court battles have taken up a lot of the cash that you cats have got. People might think this is a bit of a blunt force thing that you're taking on and and, and why try and prosecute a private individual?
1: Because we simply, um, to be frank, uh, weren't able to get any assurance from the council, from the landowner um, or the Department of Conservation for that matter, that any action was going to be taken. We couldn't be assured no further work would be carried out, even though we sought for that assurance so that is why we, were, we felt compelled to take this on. It's not something we're comfortable doing, and it's something we uh, would think very long and hard about
0: doing. Okay. or Estoniae, it's in every second roundabout and council planting, isn't it? Um, I mean, you've described why it's important to be in the wild. A third of it's gone with this single action, it seems. Where's the other two-thirds in the wild?
1: The majority of them are on the Kaitanete spit, which is where this this work was carried out. The majority of the Moulinbeke actually are on that spit, and the majority actually was on this land. Its natural distribution is that sort of coastal lowland throughout New Zealand. I think probably where it was found is around about its southern limit.
0: Oh, okay, so it's usually a bit north than that.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is, it is nationally distributed,
0: yep. In little yeah. pockets, coastally, is that is that the deal? Yeah, 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 there'll be just these little patches. Right. I don't think I've ever seen one in the wild. There you go. Okay, are you looking for a law change or something that's going to stop this from happening, or if there is something that's designated to be rare that private owners have a responsibility not to chop it all down?
1: The RMA sets out a statutory responsibility of councils to protect significant indigenous plants and animals in their habitat. And district plans are supposed to give effect to that. We think that this plan is not entirely clear and we've sought a declaration in the Environment Court as to how fit for purpose are the rules around some of this stuff is, as well as the enforcement order. But, you know... It doesn't matter what laws there are, uh, unless people are committed to the idea of caring about their environment and their special places, all the laws in the world aren't going to change things. They provide a sort of guidance and set a sort of cultural expectation, but they not, it's not going to necessarily stop these things from occurring.
0: Thank you very much, Jen Miller, Forest and Bird, Canterbury West Coast Management, and we'll see what happens. And I yes. suppose that's all we can say with it in front of the courts. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Graham. Bye.
0: New Zealand is yours. Go there now. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival, New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. There's a new wilderness book out there, yeah, another wilderness book. Um, So it better have a point of difference. I've had a read and it does have a big point of difference. Out of the Wild is what it's called. It's by Charlie Patterson, his effort to set up a house in the middle of freaking nowhere. <laughs> One of the points of difference is uh, how explicit some of the descriptions are of a lonely life. And we'll get into that as well. It's not all beer and roses and I'll look at the robin look at the tui by any means okay we'll get into some description here because as you can tell he's on the other end of the line not in god's no know, knows where at the moment charlie where are you now um in the Cargill.: all right that's basically the um the early outline you wanted to build a house in this remote area geographically lake makero it's where the failed settlement of jamestown is you don't get get there by road what was your ambition
3: well, initially I was managing salmon farms down at Stewart Island, so I had quite a stressful job. So as a hobby I sort of researched freehold titles in the national park and one thing led to another and I ended up um, buying some and developing some and living in there. But what did you want to do with it? Well, initially I was trying to develop a wilderness lodge to service the overnight market in Milford Sound. But that all turned to custard um, for a number of reasons. Mm.
0: You can still see it on Google Earth?
3: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't looked at Google Earth Jamestown for a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Give us a geographical location. Put this in people's mind's eye, okay. where the hell this effort went okay. on.
3: Okay, go to the end of the longest one-way road in New Zealand, which is the Milford Sound Road, and you turn off down the Hollyford Road, and then you walk for three days down the Hollyford. you'll come to Jamestown Bay. Well, oh, it's about 14 minutes north of Milford Sound, so... A lot of people have probably been to Milford Sound, so if you hop in a helicopter, it's 14 minutes north of Milford Sound,
0: far out, and it's just by this lake, and we call it Jamestown because there was a failed community there. That should have given you a bit of a heads up that this uh, might not be easy.
3: Uh, yeah, that's right. No, I, I've I've had a lot of learning curves I could have done without, but um, yeah, no, the early settlers were pretty pretty tough people. So this is privately owned; you could you it, could it, buy it. it. Yes, yep, it's freehold title. There's about 25 or 26 freehold titles in the field National Park and it's about, you know, 3 million acres.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so they're pretty unique pieces of land.
0: I'd imagine that you're saying, I want to build a house in the middle of nowhere here in a National Park and the bureaucracy probably just would say, stamp, good one, okay, off you go, knock yourself out, no worries. Not quite yes. like that, is it? No,
3: no, 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 no. I was the first to develop freehold land in the conservation estate under the RMA, so you know, I had huge battles. I'll give you an example, I had Southern Health oppose me on the grounds of noise pollution during the construction of the home. Um, and I had Forest and Bird and Federated Mountain Clubs. They all had a go, um, but you can't get away from the fact that it's freehold title. Uh-huh. Um, and what I was doing was permissible underneath the district plan.
0: Right, so if people have objections, some of them honourable, they really should attack that and not you.
3: Yeah, the RMA is quite a vice-driven act, but... Uh, yeah, and it's quite a. That's a big topic. <laughs> so there is a lot of bureaucracy involved in developing that sort of property.
0: It's not a small thing to undertake. It actually makes me think of Fitzcarraldo with Werner Herzog trying to get a boat over a mountain range to another river to put wow. on an opera in the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. The construction of this thing. You've got the permission. Yep. The construction. How do you go about <laughs> doing this? <laughs>
3: Uh, Well, initially all the materials were supposed to be uh, landed direct on site, but, um, you know, I've made quite a few mistakes, and I ended up having to chop it from the end of the Hollyford Road to the head of Lake Macero, and then I made barges and floated the materials down the lake, and then I carried it through to the bush. And then when I ran right out of money for helicopters, I had to start floating stuff um, down the Hollyford River. Mm. Have you you walked the Hollyford yourself? No. No, Okay. no. It's it's quite a turbulent Fjordland River. Yeah. Mm, it was quite an undertaking.
0: And it's not as if this house g- gets built in an afternoon and you can live in it. <laughs> no. Um, um, you spent um, a lot be, of time just under a hunk of plastic in yeah, this yeah. godforsaken wilderness.
3: Yeah, yeah, seven weeks under plastic uh, before I was able to sleep under a tin roof. Initially I had people helping me build, so it wasn't all just Charlie Patterson, but mm. um, yeah, I had a lot of good people in the equation. But it was seven weeks under plastic before we were able to sleep under a tin roof. Mm. Um, It was two years before I got a compliance certificate from the local authority for the dwelling. You know, your Bunnings is not sort of down the road so (laughs) things get a bit challenging if you don't have yourself organised.
0: Yeah. Mm. It is a pristine environment. Um, You have to make a low impact. What was your sanitation requirements?
3: I had to go for a fully notified resource consent for a discharge for a septic tank and then I ended up with a five stage septic tank and that was designed from memory by a scientist in the DSIR. Mm -hmm. um, But that's quite a battle associated to all that as well.
0: Now, the thing that makes this book pretty interesting is that you've got very intimate descriptions of being alone. You're there alone, and your brain can eat itself.
3: Yeah, it can. I mean... um I think people have a tendency to think in a romantic way when you talk about wilderness lifestyles, but, you know, there's the flip side, and isolation and loneliness can be a big part of it. I did one winter where I didn't talk or see anybody for three months, and uh, when I did, I actually hid. So trampers came through, and you just hid in the bush? Yeah, yeah, I watched them pass. (laughs) You can become, when you spend so much time by yourself, you can become very introverted, uh, it's not necessarily a good thing, but that's what develops if you just spend too much time by yourself.
0: Right. And you self assess that you were spending too much time by yourself.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: You couldn't do much about it though?
3: Um, no. I mean, I was trying to set up a business and, and basically I, I ran out of money um, and the business venture itself was a flop. So. I became quite reliant on <coughs> um, backpackers off the Holyford track. Uh-huh. It became quite social once, once I was able to break out of that shower a wee bit. Okay. Because I was in there for a number of years. I was in there for seven years. So. Yeah,
0: we're talking seven years in there. Good mm-hmm. God. Just describe some of the reflections on what happened in your mind.
3: I have a lot of thoughts that are, you know, quite, quite dark. I mean, the situation where I had to give CPR to a guy on the side of the Pike River, those sort of things come to mind, you know. You're
0: yeah. describing the jet boater.
3: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Right. I actually take my hat off to you for your description of finding him. We don't hear those descriptions of what essentially a dead guy looks like.
3: Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, well, yeah. you wrote it. That's right. It's I in did. the book. It is. Yeah, it is. So initially, the book was a journal, and then it was sort of um, my wife encouraged me to publish it in the raw. So, it's you know, it's all there.
0: Yep. Well, that is, I think it's point of difference. Some of the descriptions are very vivid.
3: Yeah.
0: It's, as we mentioned, the site of a failed community, Jamestown, they gave it a go for um, about five minutes and found it was (laughs) hopeless and too hard. What is left of Jamestown? You you run across some bits of it. This is fascinating.
3: Jamestown was a wee township, and it was surveyed off into about 126 sections, I think. And all that's left is a couple of apple trees. Um, Now, I haven't been in there for a couple of years, so whether those apple trees are still around, but there's no real remains except for the odd stone cairn um, and some graves and those apple trees. Yeah, it was a pretty miserable existence. This is going back into the days where Pioneer survived with axes and candles and canvas as opposed to, um, you know, having timber and bricks and... Such like, there is an old coal range um, left at Jamestown beside the apple trees, but a lot of people assume that's back from 1870s, and well, it's actually from the deer culling days back in the 1960s.
0: Ah. Mm. Uh huh. And Jamestown was was it 1890s, was it?
3: 1870. It was surveyed off in 1870 and deserted by 1879, or reported deserted by 1879.
0: And some of the lives lived there at that time. Oh my word! I want oh, to yeah, tough
3: uh, tough people. Yeah. Yeah
0: there is a fair appreciation of our wildlife that develops while you're there, or maybe a lack of it.
3: Yeah, it's a topic that I'm quite passionate about. The fact that our rainforests are silent. I mean, they're not supposed to be silent, I think... um James Cook recorded in the ship's log when he was sailing around the coastline of Fjordland that he could hear the bird life a mile out to sea. Mm. You know, It was that loud and that prolific that he could hear it a mile out to sea. And <clears throat> A large part of our national parks you can stand in and may look beautiful, but there's a silence and uh, yeah, that's quite sad.
0: And what are your attitudes about conservation then?
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I described that in the book. I, I, I think the Department of Conservation is... Um, there's a lot of good people in it, but I think it's a still it's a government organisation that's mainly run by um, academic or bureaucratic types as opposed to practical types. And I think at the end of the day, conservation on the ground is is about practical application. You know, it's getting out there and killing rats, stoats, and possums. Yep. Um, and that's where all the work is done. Yeah, that's right. That's coal face. That's what, and that's where the money should go. And yet you find in a lot of DOC budgets, more money is going to visitor asset teams and building tracks and huts and more money and more people involved with visitor assets than there is in biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of, sort of stuff that people don't really hear or want to hear.
0: Mm. That's true. You don't hear it a lot and perhaps there is a fear of whistling at a funeral. or that, that's uh,
3: right. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and
0: that is that uh, well, you do describe. You make no bones about it. Your experiences with it, Doc, the morale has declined badly. yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, having said that, I mean, uh, when when I was writing that sort of stuff, it was pretty dark and pretty opinionated. Um, You know, there is a lot of good dock people out there, and they're doing some really good stuff, especially on the offshore islands.
0: Yeah, but Mm. those are the people that you describe as being disheartened by bureaucracy.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can find that through a lot of government departments, whether it's conservation or health or... Yeah. Mm, Education.
0: Okay. When you did get out for the occasional winter, man, just going to civilization is Uh quite an ordeal to prepare for, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it it is, because like I was saying before, you become very introverted, so... Social interaction can be a bit challenging, <coughs> and things like noise. Um, oh, really? Is that the, it,
0: that's interesting? Because I was thinking that um, the walk out—it's not just an afternoon.
3: Oh yeah, well that's just part of life. I mean, when you have to go somewhere, you have to walk, or you, you have to canoe, or you have to hop on a helicopter. I mean, it, it's three days' walk to the nearest road end, and then you've got to find some sort of transport from the end of that road. So yeah.
0: How did you find transport? Did you
3: hitch? No, I had a car that was sitting at the old Hollyford Airstrip for a number of years. Oh. And I had a car sitting in Milford Sound. But uh, police got a bit concerned about that car because it was sat there for so long they just assumed some foreign tramper had gone missing. But, you um, know, we rectified that one.
0: Oh, oh well, that's good. <laughs> we don't want search and rescue out there looking for someone who wasn't there. That's right. Yeah. All right. You caught some trouble when a big remu just toppled over they thought you'd done it.
3: Yeah, yeah. When you're operating in the conservation estate and you have freehold land in the conservation estate, there's a thing called a scenic protection order. Mm -hmm. Um, It may have different terminology now, but that requires you that you're only allowed 300 square metres of bush clearance. So if you put a 150 square metre home into a 300 square metre bush clearance um, uh, with 30 metre high potter cups, you don't get much sunlight, so... Sunlight was always an issue, so when this podocarp came down by itself, there was some suggestions that I helped it down.
0: Hands on heart, you didn't do it? You didn't stick some not, jelly in
3: the bottom? No, not, not that Pacific tree, no. But as you read late in the tale, I, mm. I did run into more challenges after crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's. I still ran into bureaucratic challenges, so then I just started creating sunlight, and that's where I used the explosives.
0: You're not downing trees from the bottom as well? No, huh? no,
3: no, no, no. If you take out a tree but leave the substory vegetation, it wasn't Dean Bush clearance. But that's a technical point um, that some may argue. Mm. Okay.
0: <laughs> There's no other way of describing this. Uh, you, you were pooing blood, quite a lot of it, on your own, and you ignored the symptoms.
3: Yeah, I did. Uh, like, like I said before, it's, it was quite a deeply personal tale. So. Um, When I was thinking about publishing, it, there's lots of things I sort of think about taking out, but you're sort of encouraged to leave all that in. Yeah. But because I lived for such a long time on tin and dry goods and meat, because, you know, I was shooting the deer, Mm. and I didn't have a fridge freezer, so I had to shoot a deer every seven to ten days, it's not healthy for you. You're designed to have a lot of fruit and veggies in your diet, and if you don't get that and you spend years eating meat, which Mm. I did, um, yeah, I developed bleeding bowel. Mm
0: hmm and getting it diagnosed, you just put that off.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's there's an element of depression associated with the whole story where you become a little bit fatalistic. Yep. Um, and I have sort of described that a wee bit in the book. Yeah. But it was quite a relief to find that it wasn't um, of course. cancerous. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and did the depression come about because nobody was going to come and visit or you found out that you've bitten off more than you could chew in the middle yeah, of nowhere? Yeah, I
3: think, I, think I think it's a combination of many things, you know, the fact that it's a failed venture. I mean, male ego, you like to have success um, and the venture itself was a failure. Isolation, loneliness, there's all sorts of factors to depression. Hmm.
0: Did you ever think about Richard Henry, our first conservationist, who was even more remote Oh, yeah, he
3: had pretty heartbreaking stuff with trying to put all the kakapo onto island, didn't he?
0: Yeah.
3: And then he discovered a stoat, yeah.
0: I suppose you might have shared a little bit of what he went through.
3: Maybe, yep, yep, yep.
0: You went through some sort of religious conversion as well in, in observing nature, you infer intelligent design it's interesting uh that you're up front about that
3: yeah it's not a topic everyone likes to hear but you know i think the laws of nature and the universe are sort of too finely tuned for there not to be a god but i mean majority of people don't believe that Um, Mm -hmm. and you know it's a big topic the evolution creation debate but
0: there are problems with that assertion that it's intelligently designed
3: yeah but there (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's a big topic, but um, if you look at the law of entropy, um, for example, um, it's a classic example, it states that things tend to disorder as opposed to order, Mm -hmm. and yet you have DNA, and that's logical programmed information, you know, and even in the simplest cell, it's Mm. equivalent to libraries full of books, so, you know, that's an example of (coughs) historic science, being at contradiction with operational science.
0: That's in a closed system. We get energy from the sun. <laughs>
3: yeah, I don't know if I want to debate this. Fair enough. Because, you know, it is, you know, it is a um, topic that um, is quite controversial. Yeah. But, you know, my, my Christian faith is an I'm, I'm glad you wrote about it. Yeah, my Christian faith is an important aspect. And uh, if it wasn't for that God moment that I sort of described at the back of the book, um, yeah. I, I believe I wouldn't be here
0: oh well that's a good side of it then that you are here because of that oh, yeah yeah whether it's right or wrong <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll leave that people can read your thoughts in the book and do whatever um but i think it's great that it's just part of the dynamic of this book that you really are open about a whole lot of stuff like that and that's that is what makes it a bit different
3: well graham sometimes it's easier to be open and in a documented mm. form than, than in a social form. And because I spend so much time by myself, it's, yeah. you know, you tend to jot things down. And Yeah. Mm.
0: I hear from the occasional sigh from you that you may actually have regretted being this open in the book. Is that true?
3: Um, no, I think part of that sigh is that um, I'm still quite a shy person, so I'm not great at uh, radio interviews. Mm.
0: Well, you're doing fine so far. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't regret the openness and vivid descriptions that you give both of yourself and what happened?
3: No, no, not, not I've, to date. I've had a lot of positive feedback. The decision to
0: give it up. How hard was that?
3: All that freaking effort, and
0: it's 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 your Richard Henry moment when you see the stoke.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that God moment, that decision to leave it behind and, and, and trust in God. And, um, you know, my life has turned around since doing that. Um, so I've gone from being lonely and depressed to happily married and with a cargo with two kids. And, um, no, life's good. Good one.
0: Charlie Peterson, seven years in the wilderness. Not a unique but pretty damn close experience. <laughs> Jamestown Bay. Look it up on a map google earth or whatever you like and you'll see where this endeavor took place seven years out of the wild is the name of the book charlie thank you very much and i appreciate your time
3: hey graham yeah no thank you